0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and this is the Astrology Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking with Melanie Reinhardt about the astrology of Chiron. So this is episode 271, and I'm recording it on Monday, September 14th, 2020, starting at 11.04 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Hi, Melanie, welcome to the episode, or welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Chris, and thanks so much for inviting me to have a conversation with you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, this is I'm I'm excited to do this episode. It's been one I've been meaning to do for a long time and that a lot of listeners have asked me to do an episode on Chiron. I did an episode just sort of in general on the asteroids earlier this year, finally with Demetra George, but I wanted to we didn't I really saw, go. I
1: saw that it was lovely.
0: Yeah, I was glad to have that discussion, but one of the points that came up that was interesting that we noted is that she had focused more on Series and Vesta and Juno and and didn't cover Chiron as much in her book, um, but yours was one of the first books that really um, set the stage. And, and early in my studies in the early 2000s, there were like two major books on Chiron that were out there, and yours was really one of the main ones. And it seems like it's been one of the most influential ones in establishing Chiron as um, something that a lot of modern astrologers use in practice. And really quickly, the the title of your book is "Chiron and the Healing Journey," which was published yeah. in ni- 1989,
1: right? Yes, and then there was a revision I did under my own imprint. It came out in 2010.
0: Okay,
2: so yeah, the, the
1: first the first one was published by Penguin,
0: right? Yeah, it was part of the Penguin Arcana series, which was like a really amazing Correct. series oh, at that the time. Was,
1: oh, it was really wonderful. Um, it had, really wonderful,
0: like Jeffrey Cornelius's *The Moment of Astrology* and your book, yes. and like a few other really major books at the time. Yes. Um, all right. Well, let's, the, oh, the go ahead.
1: series editor was Howard Susportus.
0: Oh wow. Okay. And then later, I think by the time of the second edition of your book, it was Erin Sullivan. Correct. Okay.
1: Yes. After Howard died, she was well, she'd been working with him on it, but she took over that and fought very hard. To keep the thing going, but Penguin basically abandoned it.
2: Okay, I was which, wondering what which, happened.
1: Which was a pity because actually, when the series began, they had a marvelous overall editor called Robin Waterfield. He was a classic scholar,
0: yeah,
2: and very was, much
1: astrology friendly. He was but, a really no, um,
0: notable classic scholar.
1: Uh, oh, absolutely, yes, mm-hmm. and a, a really nice bloke and very astrology friendly. And um, he he went on to greater things and basically left a big vacuum in the overall editorship and apart from his shepherding of it really penguin wasn't really equipped with the subject material you know
0: sure and they yeah. they
1: just kind of abandoned it and just didn't reprint stuff and bit by bit the whole series went out of print it was very sad that
0: yeah. Well, this was back when major publishers like Penguin were still doing astrology books, which it seems like many have moved away from. And Correct. Howard is The Gods of Change was one of the books in that series, which is also an amazing book. That's right. Um, but let's talk about uh, your work. So first, I wanted to introduce you to the, my audience and talk a little bit about your background and mm-hmm. um, some of the things that you've done just to give some context for your work. So, um, in your bio on your website, it says that you've been practicing astrology since about 1975.
1: Yeah, well, uh, that was when I did my first piece of paid for work. I'd been reading charts already for a few years before that. Okay, so and that was astrology- the first time you
0: did a paid consultation. Uh, I always ask yeah. people, like, what what do you consider like the moment that you started being a a practicing astrologer? And for you, it's the first time somebody paid you for a consultation.
1: Um, I would no, I, because I was already reading lots of charts actually before that for mm. a few years and I, I took that equally seriously you know right but but certainly the the first the first paid for consultation that felt like some little watershed also very significant was that was the very month that I actually met Dane Rudyard wow so I was living in the states at that time in Massachusetts and mm. he did um, a, wo- a weekend workshop in the the astrology center, I believe it was called, in New York City, hmm. and um, I travelled down to New York uh, for this and have a, had a weekend in heaven, um, meeting Dane Rujar and so on. He was quite wonderful, and it was... Um, it, it was really down to he, he was the one who really gave me the shove to encourage me to. To start charging and to start thinking of myself as a professional, which I wasn't really before. Mm. I was taking it seriously, but that was very special.
0: Was Rudyard one of your primary influences early on as an astrologer?
1: Absolutely, yes. Astrology had come into my life when I was 10 years old and and under very kind of, well, interesting circumstances in the light of what I focused on later. Um in that i I fell and broke my arm rather badly up near the shoulder, and uh, I had a lot of time off school because I had to be in this huge plaster cast, so movement wow. was difficult and getting around and all that. But the local library was at the end of our street, so instead of going to school, I would kind of waddle down the road, this big big plaster cast thing, and spend my day in the library. Now, this was back in Rhodesia as it was, Zimbabwe as it's become. And it was and is basically an agrarian economy.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And so there there was one shelf about yay wide, I kid you not, called Philosophy, Psychology and Religion. That was it. This was the National Library of Rhodesia. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: However, even a small bookshelf like that, if you really read the stuff and really think about it, you, you can get like years of inquiry and thinking and wondering and being philosophically stimulated. And there was one little book on astrology. I wish I remembered the title and the author, but I don't.
3: Mm.
1: And the, my memory of that is so vivid. I remember, because I had my arm in this big cast out here, so I propped the book on the cast, and I was reading it like this, and I absolutely knew that there was way more to astrology than was in this little book. Mm. So I was left feeling really frustrated. I was the only one on astrology, and I, I just absolutely knew that, that there was so much more to it. And in that moment, You know, the passion to find out and to learn more was ignited. So, in the, you know, lacking classes or books because it was wartime and sanctions and all that, you know, um, I simply memorized all the sun signs and then I would ask every single person I met, always ask them their birthday. Mm -hmm. And I would think and write notes and see how it checked out with this little book. And ponder and wonder and so forth, and I did that for years and years, just sort of thinking, thinking about it, mulling it over. I remember also my father showing me some of the constellations at night. Vivid memories of that against a beautiful black African sky. How did and your family? I,
0: you you were born in Zimbabwe and you spent yes, the first part of your life there. How did that come yes. about? Yes.
1: Um, so my father was born in South Africa. His father was from Yorkshire, and my mother was born in Dublin, and they actually met out in Zimbabwe.
0: okay. Um, so did you find astrology definitely at the age of ten or was it around ten? Yeah, okay was 10. That, that's a beautiful story. So you started that started your lifelong interest in it and then yep um eventually you said you were in New York by the time you met Rudyard and you were living in the us. At what yes. point did your studies really accelerate, or was it already just full on from
1: there? They accelerated when I left school and went down to Cape Town to university. Okay. And uh, compared to Zimbabwe, Cape Town, well, there was this major metropolis, you know, and it was possible to get astrology books and things like that.
0: What was the time frame and what was the astrological community like there in in, um, South Africa at that point?
1: I didn't connect with it at all, Mm. which is really interesting because I have a dear astrological friend, Darby Costello, and she actually arrived in Africa the year that I left. So we were like ships passing in the night and never met there, Mm. but met back in London. Okay. So that step there, a friend gave me a book by Dane Rudyard called The Pulse of Life for my, I think it was my 20th or my 19th birthday. And I just had this epiphany when I read it. I wept. I had just like an absolute ecstasy of connecting with the way this man thought and recognizing myself in the astrology. And it was like this was what I'd been looking for. Mm. I was so inspired. And and that connection was part of the reason why I left Africa. I I, I didn't really know anything about the astrological community in England and how rich it was. Mm. But I knew at least I'd be able to get more of Rujar's books and so forth. So I did leave. And I lived for many years. Either living directly in or connected to a spiritual community in the Sufi tradition. And when I arrived there to take up my residence, it only turned out that the man who, the teacher who was focalizing this community, he was only the publisher of Dane Rujar's work, so there was like the complete first edition hardback original. Wow. Publications of Rudjar, which took up, you know, a big amount of the community bookshelf, mm. wow. and it was through him that I first met Rudjar, and then the second time was when I went down to New York, okay, to it- to the workshop, yeah,
0: and so that was that community, the Sufi community was in the UK, yes, okay, got it. So then. Eventually, you make that personal connection with Rudyard. He encourages you to dive into the practice of astrology, yeah. which must have been really compelling at that point. If he was like your main person, oh who, yeah, it was astrology. like it was,
1: it was like God, God on high had <laughs> had given me this crucial bit of encouragement.
0: Sure. Um, so let's see. So to circle around, I'm actually I'm not sure if to jump forward. I mean, eventually, why don't we jump into our main topic, which is um, Chiron was discovered on November first, 1977 by an astronomer yes. named Charles Cole. Yes. Um, and this began a period in like the late 70s and early 1980s when it seemed like astrologers started slowly getting interested in um, studying minor planetary bodies and asteroids like Ceres and Vesta and Juno. And then eventually, um, some astrologers started studying Chiron. At what point did you get interested in it or start researching it?
1: Uh, Immediately that I heard about its discovery. Mm. Because it was immediately, unusually, it was immediately named by the person who discovered it. Usually a whole big numbering and naming process can go on, which can take years actually for a name to be confirmed. And, um, it's, uh, it has to be agreed by a committee, which is the International Astronomical Union. But in this case, um, the astronomer who discovered Chiron knew some background mythology, mm. and he could see um, that there was a relationship between Saturn and Uranus. And so in that sense, um, that is part of the genealogy behind behind Ch- behind Chiron's legacy and so forth so he named it Chiron
2: okay so because and, it- the,
1: and the name stuck so then it was named immediately sometimes it's only named a long time after and it was only 6 months before ephemeris came out
0: oh wow okay that's quick so he named it Very partially cuz it orbits between um, correct. The, the orbits of saturn and of uranus correct saturn and
1: uranus yes and yeah. the other thing was that the in the first ephemerises, I forget oh, Tony Joseph was the name, I believe. They came out within six months, and there was an excellent introductory essay, just two or three pages. And I was very excited because it was exactly along the same lines that I'd already been thinking. Mm. So I was interested immediately for entirely personal reasons, because I knew the mythology of Chiron and the whole notion of the wounded healer was already meaningful uh, in my life. Had you already
0: studied mythology a lot extensively up to that point, or was that a major I, piece? I wouldn't of your... say
1: I wouldn't say extensively, but I'd studied quite a lot in a way, using the planets as my base and kind of digging around from that. But I'm not, you know, like a proper student of mythology, like like some of our community are.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Um so let's see. So Chiron was the first of like a new class of bodies called centaurs yeah, that are correct. discovered which are bodies orbiting between the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt which is really far out there.
1: Um, um no, it's my understanding that um well <laughs> in in the beginning when when the when this group of Kuiper belt objects um, or, or let me put that differently, objects that were said to have originated in the Kuiper belt were discovered, and the whole group was called centaurs. There was a flurry of attempt to define these little beasts. Mm. And in the beginning, it seemed quite straightforward to me, and it was logical and made sense, and it was kind of obvious. So in other words, there were a few distinguishing characteristics of these objects. Uh, one was they all have very elliptical orbits, Mm-hmm. Two was that the orbits are very steeply inclined to the ecliptic. And three, they all, with one exception I'll mention maybe later, they all cross over the orbit of at least one of the classical planets. Okay uh, But um, the, the sort of centaur zone, if you like, is is in between Jupiter and Pluto. So okay. if they go in closer, Like into the asteroid belt, they're not centaurs anymore. And if they go further out than Pluto, they're not centaurs anymore. So they're kind of in this zone, which links the outer part of the visible planets to the, to the invisible planets. And to me, that symbolism absolutely speaks volumes. You know, Um, do you want me to say a bit uh, more about that or?
0: Um, I'd want to get into that. I like that actually because that's one of the, your access points that's really interesting to me in your work for understanding Chiron is not just the mythology but also the astronomical properties. The astronomy,
1: it's so, so eloquent. Oh, I love it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Astronomy, um, I mean. So let me throw out a few other preliminary things really quickly. So um, Chiron has been variously classified as an asteroid, a minor planet, a dwarf planet, or even a comet. Um, some astrologers yep. quickly became interested in researching it. I tried to compile a quick biograph- or bibliography and you could let me know if this is correct or not. But one of the early astrologers, or one of the first that I've been told who started working with Chiron, there was an astrologer named Zane Stein. Correct. Um, then there was another book by Ermini Lentero,
1: Oh, Oh, yes. No, I did uh, read
0: that. Titled The Continuing Discovery of Chiron that came out in a 1984. Fantastic book. Yes. Okay, you like that. And then uh, Demetra's yeah. book Asteroid Goddesses came out in June of 1986. Um, there was another book by Barbara Hen Clough that came yes. out on Chiron in 1987. Your book, um, Chiron and the Healing Journey, was published first published in 1989. Yeah. Um, and then there were other subsequent books, for example, by Martha Lang Westcott that also dealt with both asteroids as well as um, hypothetical planets. Is there anybody else that I should mention?
1: Two more: Richard Noll or Nolly. Mm-hmm. And this is an early one. I think it was just called Chiron. Okay. There was some 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 great insights in there, and then much more recently, um, Adam Gainsburg, Chiron and the Wisdom of a Deep something something about the wisdom of the heart. Beautiful book.
2: Okay, brilliant. So that
1: um, so Adam Adams is really recent, and Richard Knoll is like way back, one of the first people.
0: Okay, Um, yeah, Adams' book is Chiron: The Wisdom of a Deeply Open Heart. That's it. Uh, September two thousand six. All right. So that's some of the early history, and that also just sort of places you in terms of um, when when your book came out, and also showing that there was a lot of early interest. So your book was published, I guess, twelve years after Chiron was first discovered. And so you'd been working with it for at least over a decade at that point,
1: yeah, because I got into it immediately. And also in in my own chart, I've Chiron in Sagittarius opposite my son in Gemini. and it it kind of it's visually stands out in the chart. Mm. So I sort of casually thought, well, you know, if this little, unknown object is going to be relevant for me. It should be fairly easy to see in terms of life events and transits. And then about six months later, I realized, oh my god, by transit, Chiron was about to make conjunctions with every single one of my personal planets. Mm. So it was discovered in Taurus. Then I have a whole band of planets in Taurus and Gemini. And I, I thought, oh, look at that! I then thought, oh well, I guess, you know, if if there is something in this for me or others, then my life should turn into a like a ringside a ringside seat for the Chiron show, right? Because just years, about ten years worth of conjunctions. Okay, and so my, it spins. my God! I had no idea what was coming down the tracks for me. I tell you. And I really feel I, I learned everything that I learned about Chiron from this inner journey. And then um, later from working with clients. And I feel that the journey I went on equipped me to do that work. There was an entire kind of cosmology um, which kind of rolled itself out as a result of my journey. And it it went into areas of of psychological work that were unheard of back then mm. and are now not exactly top of the pops but more and more people are understanding these themes and writing about them so amongst others those include transgenerational trauma and by the same token, transgenerational healing, Mm. and also uh, healing the historical wounds that are embedded in that ancestry, Um, even including things that aren't direct personal wounds, but things like cultural injustices and so forth. Because obviously coming from Rhodesia, there was really a lot to process in terms of the, the colonial history that went on in Africa. My God, you know, just mm. unbelievable. Right. And that was not really considered back then, even in the more enlightened versions of psychological treatments and all the rest of it. Mm. And so, I, I, I wrote about all of that kind of stuff in my book. And it's lovely now to see that lots and lots of people are doing all kinds of really amazing work in exactly those areas. But at the time, I was very much on my own with that. Even though I was in a Jungian analysis, um, that framework, at least in the practice of it, I didn't really feel met by it in the way that I was experiencing. This process. And it was like, I mean, I hesitate to use the word because I don't want to be claiming anything, but it felt like a kind of process of shamanic initiation which went on from 1983 until past 1989. And that period included the writing of the book, Mm. which felt to me like a thread. Like an Ariadne's thread type of thing in terms of the personal transits that I was watching from Chiron onto my chart. Now, you might be able to talk yourself into lots of things interpretively in astrology, but you cannot fake transits that absolutely demonstrate the symbolism and the process. And it was like a kind of a lifeline for me. So Pretty soon, I began to get clients where it was the same. They were like walking symbolic compendiums of the story of Chiron. Mm. And this actually pings me onto one of the questions that, that you wrote here, a listener question.
2: Okay.
1: Shall I? Yes. The, the question is: What? Uh, uh, when do you feel you need to talk about Chiron?
0: Right, that it, came from a listener.
1: Yes, um, from Zamboni. Yeah, Zamboni. So, Funk. Yeah, th- there's a very particular answer to that. First of all, I don't feel I need to talk about. I need to talk about Chiron, and I almost never try to interpret it. All I do is listen, and if what I'm hearing. From my client who's speaking is basically telling me a story, which is so obviously within the uh, the territory of Chiron, and there I hesitated because I now very much think of all the centaurs as a group, and when I say all, I should clarify: I don't use them all. There's more than I, I forgot the number. I think it's about around four hundred centaurs now. Okay. There's only about twenty of them, I think, which have actually been named.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: of those, even fewer that have been researched. Me, I don't think of myself as a researcher. I can only work with something that absolutely speaks to me, and I can't make that happen. Mm. So once that energy connection and almost like a, f- a full-body um, energy connection has occurred, then I do the so-called research. But all I'm doing is um, uh, a kind of containing or um, like, like if you're painting, you might have a vision first, and then you get out the paints and the oils and the, the brush. So that's what I tried to do with words, tried to paint a picture of what I'd already experienced, not, not just me, but hundreds and hundreds of clients. It got so bizarre that I, I, I sometimes thought, my God, this really feels like these clients are coming to teach me about how Chiron works. Unbelievable. Um,
0: sure. So, part of your process, though, was a an empirical process of like understanding what this new body meant, partially through paying attention to it in your own chart and also exactly uh, paying attention to it in the charts of clients.
1: Indeed. So, just to go back to Zamboni's question, I I really don't feel like I need to talk about Chiron, but I, I guess maybe because I've worked so much with it, mostly I do end up talking about Chiron, and mostly that's because. I can hear the story in what people are telling me. And it's got down to um, one time a man walked in limping and he'd fallen off a horse and injured his leg. Chiron was injured in his leg and he was a centaur. So his horse half with the lower half. I mean, and of course he had a big Chiron transit. And I'm sitting there kind of almost speechless because I don't even know what to say.
0: Sure. Well, let's go back to square one, just, and let's assume that anybody listening to this doesn't have any idea what Chiron means or or anything yeah. about the mythology, and let's yeah. introduce the starting point. So you started studying it empirically, but also, um, there was a heavy use of mythology and a sort of presumption that it seems like many astrologers were making from the 1970s and 80s forward that the name that was chosen for Chiron and the myth, the Greek myths associated with that actually had some sort of deeper symbolic significance that actually um related to what it meant in astrology, right?
1: Um yes, I think uh yeah, th- I think that's true. I mean is Me, that I, true or I, I don't I don't want to put well, words here. I, in your I mouth? don't I don't know about the assumption. Well I, I never really assumed that. It was just that everything seemed to everything seemed to fit, you know? Right. Then, I
0: mean, do you think that the mythology of Chiron is relevant for its interpretation and meaning in astrology? Yes, I do. Okay, I do. Um,
1: And do you know um, when I was actually writing the book? I mean, collected up these massive boxes of notes and so forth. But I actually never even thought of writing a book. I was just working to try and understand it myself. mm -hmm. It was Howard who made that suggestion. Bless him. So he had Chiron in Scorpio on the midheaven. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who gave me the gave me the shove, gave me the prompt, you know, nice, yeah, very um, nice,
0: yeah. so what um what is the myth associated with Chiron, or what parts of the myth are relevant for somebody that's new to understanding Chiron yeah. And mythology?
1: Yeah, I would say that there's a very important reflection for us astrologers of the meaning of Chiron if you just study the astronomy a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's very graphic and I love that. So to me, you know, if the if the the name and the mythology and the astronomy check out with the astrology that you're actually seeing, Mm -hmm. well, you know, that that's good enough for me. I know that that's why I said I'm not really a researcher. I just kind of put stuff together and, you know, um, initially, that would be um, a resonance in my own process, and I don't automatically assume it's going to be of interest to anybody else. It's mm. usually a really long time before I have researched it and then begin to share it and so forth, because essentially the other centaurs that I work with, I don't, I don't work with all 400 or something of them. I only work with four, um, but each of them I learned about in the same way and ongoingly, you know
2: mm-hmm. right
3: um so- now
1: I think I yeah I can l- let me um answer your question more directly. So we see that Chiron and the centaurs occupy the zone in the solar system that goes between Jupiter and Pluto
3: mm-hmm.
1: so, that zone includes the outer edges of the easily visible planets and the ones that can't be seen with the naked eye but were discovered with maths and technology. So it really is like two different worlds. They cross um, to and fro um, between these two worlds, the visible and the invisible. Now, that absolutely speaks volumes because we all know what the visible world is, at least at the level of the senses. And the notion of the invisible worlds, wow, that contains so much. It's our own internal experience. It's what's known as the unconscious in some systems of psychology. It's the spirit world. That's a more ancient Um, and indigenous kind of a cosmology, but it's totally part of the human experience. It's just been pushed out and derided and oppressed for so long that people don't believe it, don't believe in it. Regardless of the fact that many, many people do have experiences of the spirit world through their dreams, through reveries, through spirit visitations, etc., but they probably don't speak about it afraid that people think they're mad. Mm. Likewise, people can communicate with animals. This is a natural thing. Like any gift, it can be more developed in some people than others, but actually it's natural to be able to communicate with animals. and This is a very, very ancient thing. Communicating with plants, same thing. Um, there's a whole range of wonderful Um, um, flower healing essences. There's almost like all over the world, people are now they're reviving the way of using plant essences, and the way it's done is through a communion. uh, Where it's like you know, you speak to the spirit of the plant, or more accurately, they speak to you. Now you see, it's that kind of consciousness that Chiron brings to us. Some people are very at home in that and others are frankly terrified and don't want to know. Fair enough, you know? Yeah. So this notion of crossing the borders and connecting different dimensions of experience between the living and the dead, between the animals and the human, between the past and the future, whatever. And making that bridge. I mean, in Barbara Han lovely book, she calls Chiron the Rainbow Bridge. And th- and I think partly it's this astronomical symbolism that evokes that uh, that evokes that so Chiron, so
0: Chiron acting as a bridge and bridging two worlds or two seemingly
1: exactly.
0: unconnected yeah. um areas yeah. and that partially is also reflected in the astronomy as you described exactly. as well as in the mythology of Chiron being like half human and half animal
1: exactly exactly in his image in his very form Is exactly that dilemma. Okay. And
0: what is the, for those that don't know, why, what that means in terms of Chiron being half human and half animal, why is that or what is the myth associated with that?
1: Well, um, in his, in the myth of his origins, uh, Chiron's father was Cronus or Saturn. And his mother was a nymph called Philaira. And at the time Chiron was conceived, both these, um, well, uh, Saturn was a, was a, a, a god, a member of the Olympian gang, and Philaira was a nymph. But like gods and demigods, often can shape shift, so both of them. Had shape shifted into being in their horse form. And that they were like that when Chiron was conceived. So when Chiron was born to Philira, when he came out of the womb as half-horse, she was completely horrified. And prayed to the gods to be made into anything other than what she was, namely the mother of. A monster, as she saw it. So Chiron was abandoned, and in the time-honored manner of myth and legend, was found by a shepherd and rescued from certain death, and taken to the great god Apollo, who became his foster father. So he was mentored and fostered by Apollo himself, who taught him numerous skills like apollo was also associated with healing very significantly both he and his sister were said to both send and cure plagues and um yeah he he was chiron was taught all kinds of survival skills and in a sense he had almost, like one can imagine, the the kind of initiation rites that appropriate for a young man, young hero, whatever. And there was an incident where um, some of the more unruly centaurs, the, the ones that have they don't have any, Olympia, any Olympian ancestors. They're, they're more like a, a seething, uncontrollable mob that used to rampage through towns and take wine and steal it, or take brides and steal them. And they're, they're an image of just a raw, unbridled, um, vital force. Um So those are the centaurs, without any particular Olympian legacy Mm. or ancestry, and uh, they they often used to fight. So in one of those fights, Chiron got wounded by an arrow from Hercules, who was often there's a lot of friezes, statues, in the British Museum, some of them from the Parthenon, depicting the battle between. The Lapiths and the Centaurs, and Hercules was often involved in those battles. And it's like the kind of time-honored battle between the so-called civilized and the so-called primitive. So, so evocative, because of course a lot of that description rests on projection. Anyway, Chiron was wounded in the leg, depends which version as to where, but it's either the thigh or the knee. Another centaur was wounded in the foot, but that's another story. And because the wound was poisoned, he couldn't heal it. And as a demigod, he couldn't die. And so he lived, and I think it's, it's either Apollodorus or Hesiod who gives the figure of 900 and something years that he lived in mortal agony, mm. unable to heal his own wound but becoming a great mentor and wise man and healer himself in Mm. the process. And then eventually, um, he changed places with Prometheus. Um, Prometheus, you might know the story, he was chained on a rock because he had mocked Zeus. Probably not a very good idea, but that's what he did. Sure. And it's a really interesting story, but too long, I think, to go into here. Mm -hmm. Prometheus is mainly known as the fellow who stole the fire from the gods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's like a comic strip version of it. There's a whole background thing, which is really thought provoking, very interesting. And that part is in my book. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, the notion of changing places. With somebody. That's like the phrase, walking a mile in someone's moccasins. You know, so it's awakening of compassion when you can really, really do that. And so this was what freed both of them from their suffering. And Chiron was able to die, meaning become immortalized in this context, Um, in the constellation of. Centaurus or some say Sagittarius. Um, there's some scholarly discussion about which of those two co- constellations best portrays the storylines. And it does seem that Centaurus, uh, looks more like, um, the insignia or, or the story around Pholus. But, um, what is very interesting is that the two Centaurs, you you can, they're not that far away from each other. I mean, in sky terms, of course, it's like miles. But if you look on a star map, um, the two Centaurs actually look or point their arrows towards the Scorpion, mm. a- and above the Scorpion is the so-called thirteenth sign. You know, a, a Fucus that cyclically kind of. Gets reported in the news and causes alarm and despondency because everybody thinks all their zodiac signs are wrong and everything
3: right
1: but anyway it's a beautiful picture because both the centaurs and also a fucus are concerned with um, illness sickness and and healing as well mm. and you know the scorpion um, is, is also associated with poison and also the power of transformation. That partly through the Pluto connection. Because when we look at Chiron and the Centaurs, what we can see immediately is that Pluto and Chiron and the Centaurs, to me, they belong in the same category because of the astronomy. So, all of them. So, before Chiron and the Centaurs was discovered, Pluto was the only orbit crossing planet at such a high, such a steep angle to the ecliptic. And it was Dane Rudyard who, who waxed lyrical about that decades before Chiron was discovered. Hmm. And he spoke about orbit crossing in a similar way that he spoke about comets, that it was like the, the, um, the intrusion of new energy into an old system or the bringing in of the light from out of the dark. Also the purification. He spoke about, um, the sense of something coming in to the solar system, almost like an intervention and bringing new energy, new impulses of energy, and so forth. Now, Rudolf Steiner, very interesting on the subject of comets, because he spoke about a process of astral purification, whereby the comet, so what we see as the comet's tail getting brighter and brighter and brighter, he describes that as. Sort of astral debris being burned up. And so, like purifying the solar system as it goes, very interesting. Mm. So, temporarily in 1970, 19, uh, uh, 1987, 88, or maybe a bit later, there was just a short period where um, Chiron got a comet classification. Because right. they thought they saw a tail that was brightening, but it didn't really come to much. Now, what's so interesting about Chiron? It keeps on being reclassified. I think it's now settled because he's he's now the chief chief centaur of the centaur gay, um, gang. You know, but before that, he he has an asteroid number, a comet number, um, and of course a, a minor planet appellation. Yeah, The first, right. the first name was a planetoid planetoid asteroid uh, comet, uh, then um, co- then a mi- minor planet, and then the sub subcategory of of Centaur. Yeah, it uh,
3: seems and, like uh, there's... But the point
1: is he's kept all of those classifications. He hasn't gone, oh no no, I'm not that. You know, it's like it all fits, it all kind of works. So a beautiful image of a process of transformation of our own core identity really that when we're changing from who we thought we were into who we are becoming you know we might move from planetoid to asteroid to comet etc and it's not that any of those are wrong wrong and should be therefore thrown away they're all fine it's all part of the journey and to me that's a very powerful symbol
0: yeah, it looks like um, on the Wikipedia entry, it still has the dual classification. It says, although it was initially called an asteroid and classified only as a minor planet with the designation 2060 Chiron, it was later found to exhibit behavior typical of a comet. Today, it is classified as both a minor planet and a comet and is accordingly also known by the commentary designation 95P slash Chiron so it still has this like dual astronomical role which is really interesting in terms of again tying back in with the mythology of being a like half human and half animal
1: exactly and that thing of linking the inner world and the outer world um and yeah so so all of the above really speaks volume, volumes also how i think about the fact you see Chiron actually cuts through Saturn's orbit mm
3: mm-hmm.
1: And, um, now I did make notes about this as to when the last dates were. I think it was, it was some, some point in 1992, Chiron went in through Saturn's orbit at about six degrees of Leo. And on the, on the, it was January 1999, it came back out through the portal of zero and some Minutes of Sagittarius, mm. and it will come in and out through those two signs for quite a few passes. Still,
0: so it has a fifty-year orbital cycle, right?
1: That's right. It's just in just over fifty years, but fairly even, mm. sort of between fifty and fifty-one-ish. But you know, pretty—that's pretty, that's pretty um, regular. Mm. Whereas, of course, because of the orbital eccentricity, you can't divide up the Chiron cycle neatly like you can Saturn and say, oh well, roughly every seven to nine years, you know, you get a big a big phone call from Saturn. You know, you can't do that with Chiron Chiron, because the first square can occur any age from I think it's about five when I was researching this. You can get it as young as five years old, or you can get it in your early twenties. Okay. So it depends on which side which sign Chiron is in. So it um, um-
0: because of its highly elliptical orbit it's more like a an oval rather than a circle and it exactly. moves through moves through some signs of the zodiac very quickly like virgo and libra in about 2 correct. years correct wh- whereas it moves through other signs like pisces and aries very slowly and takes 8 years
1: correct absolutely right and there you can see that because well Chiron actually moves through the orbit of Saturn physically and then at the at the aphelion, in other words, its furthest distance from the Sun, it goes way up to Uranus, but doesn't actually cross its orbital path. Mm. It goes into what's called what, what's rather confusingly called the sphere um, of Uranus. It goes to the inside, um, but not actually right across the, the mean average orbital path. And so so there it's you know it's kind of really obvious because Chiron takes, rough, I mean, Saturn takes roughly two and a half years to go through uh, one sign, and Uranus takes about seven to eight years. Likewise, when Chiron's really near Saturn uh, um, or inside Saturn, it'll go really quickly through its signs, and uh, when it's approaching the aphelion it'll be it'll be long, like Uranus, seven to eight years. You see.
0: Okay. So let's see. So going back to the um, the mythology, it seems like two of the main, some of the main keywords that astrologers have developed, especially from mythology, are ideas of Chiron being the wounded healer, and that being like a major uh, recurring motif that astrologers use when they're discussing Chiron. Yeah, and that's partially due to the idea that it was he, he was somebody that w- was poisoned, but then um, because he was partially immortal, he couldn't die, but correct, he, he also had the skills to heal other people without being able to heal himself.
1: Correct. Now, there's another thing which, um, in fact, this was where I was going when, when I spoke about the fact that Chiron goes through the orbit of Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that particular astronomy also tells us something when when we link it with our knowledge of astrology so if we think of saturn as established structures i mean obviously the that's that's not a keyword description of saturn but the meaning of saturn includes reference to the established structures you know history tradition the status quo what we take for granted also our psychological patterning And defenses, whether they're known to us or unknown to us, and so on. And so when we're in a process of change, it's very painful for the ego. Even if it's a change we've been working for, or intending, or working towards, it can still be very, very painful when you really take yourself to the edge. Of your structures, as you get to know about them, it can be exceptionally painful. And so there's a way in which this endless looping around that Chiron does through the orbit of Saturn, through the orbit of Saturn, it makes me think of kind of kneading bread or digging in the garden or something. Something has to be cultivated and i think there is where the theme of the heart comes in because it, you know in many different traditions it's pointed out that the heart be that the simple feeling human heart or the heart chakra with its internal energy connections that is the place from which opposites can be reconciled and hey a clear pair of opposites is saturn and uranus So the status quo and that which turns the status quo upside down, including internally. So that can be a shock of any kind, including just the regular ordinary shocks that we meet through our life in the process of growing up and becoming socialized and all the rest of it. And so Chiron kind of goes looping through and connecting the visible and the invisible In a process of kind of spiritually maturing, so that may or may not uh, have anything to do with being sick or ill or wounded, per se, Mm. but it might do. There's a there's a correlate to that, which is that many people experience major major awakenings as a direct result of illness and physical suffering, Mm. and. Wounds of various kinds. It's incredibly common. Um, I'm sure all of you listening would probably know at least one person, probably several, who've had those kinds of experiences. You really, you really are taken right out of the familiar, visible, known world. If you have an experience of very severe pain, and if you work with that. In whatever way makes sense for you, it can really really be like your teacher. Um, and as that has been very much part of my life, um, I think that's also one of the one of the reasons I resonated immediately with Chiron because um this m- might sound a strange thing to say. But I almost feel like the the path of working with suffering, our own or others, it, it is a particular kind of spiritual path. There are lessons we get from our own illnesses and physical sufferings as well as emotional sufferings that we don't get in any other way.
0: Right. Like- so- Empathy is a really major component that sometimes comes from suffering that I've been thinking about lately in reading yeah. one person's biography is that his repeated um, instances of loss in his life had allowed him to cultivate a sense of empathy that yes. he might not have had otherwise.
1: Exactly right, exactly right. And very often, you know, um In the case where where Chiron in the horoscope can be seen to symbolize a really particular gift that somebody has, that's usually a gift that has been bestowed on the back of a lot of of a lot of suffering.
3: Mm.
1: You know? And 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 you, you can't kind of manipulate that and say, Oh, let me look at my chart and see. See what gift my Chiron placement is going to give me so I can kind of get to that as quick as possible.
0: Right, like a shortcut or something?
1: Exactly right because yeah. it's it's bestowed. You can't kind of for, you you can't fake that, you know.
0: Okay. So there's no no cheat codes for Chiron. Um so <laughs> right. what are the so so let's talk maybe about an instance to give a concrete example. I mean, I obviously that makes me think of of your example when you were 10 of you know having that injury and being in that cast yeah. but then yeah. as a result of that you know going to the library and reading a lot and coming across an astrology book and having that sort of initiation into astrology through that um i i did a there's a similar example earlier this year when the astrologer Robert Zoller passed away i released an old interview that i did with him 10 years ago and he he similarly talked about being a very sickly child and one of the only things that brought him pleasure that he could do was just read Fairy tales and things like that, and through that he eventually got into astrology. Um, That seems like an interesting. That seems to get to the core of sort of part of what you're talking about in terms of sometimes people having um, a pain or an experience of suffering, but something that allows them then to find something else that then eventually they're able to use to help other people in some way, or that becomes part of their personal journey.
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, and. And a variant on that theme is that where where you find Chiron, it does sometimes indicate things that we do extremely well for others but we can't do for ourselves. That's like Chiron not being able to heal his wound, and you know those things range from from just um from just amusing and bother- and bothersome to really, really big life patterns
3: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, that often do eventually come to a crisis and the person who's doing for others what they can't do for themselves has to kind of turn the ship around for their own survival sometimes. Um, Yeah,
0: like I'm thinking of, let's say, like a chiron connected with relationships at the seventh house and maybe somebody uh, that does marriage counseling for other people but who themselves maybe Struggles with relationships for for one reason or another.
1: Exactly. In fact, I can even think of a couple of examples of exactly that. And very poignantly, who got into the the marriage guidance counseling work on the back of an extremely painful separation from her husband. Mm. And so, in a sense, she remains uh, subliminally. Brokenhearted. And she is genuinely able, she has helped a lot of people. Mm. And, you know, that seems to be what happens and how it works. And then a further level of awakening might well be it's like, wow, what am I doing? And needing to redirect that energy to include oneself in the kind of healing field. That's a, a very common. And in fact, often that happens around the Chiron return, you know.
0: The the process of using that to help other people or the process of finally trying to turn that inside and trying to heal one's own wounds?
1: It can be either. Like what I've noticed around the Chiron return, If if people have a healing vocation of any kind,
3: mm-hmm.
1: that's a very common time for it to surface. Now, it might sound kind of late in one's life to be suddenly picking up a healing vocation. But most people have known all along that they had that, but for one reason or another, didn't follow it. Mm. And at the Chiron return, it's like, okay, now, it's now or never, and I'm going to do it. The, the other variation is that people who have already been working in any of the fields of healing—I'm using that in a very broad, generic way—it's not uncommon for them to get to the Chiron return, and either give it up completely, or retrain in a parallel but similar field, or take a slightly different road within what they're doing, like maybe decide to write a book or become a trainer, etc, and either way doing a lot of reflecting um, on their work. and it, it's very, very common that oh and. Around the Chiron return, this this I do want to um mention. Mm-hmm. Of course one can't generalize about when uh women have their menopause. But I think it's fair to say that averagely, at least from the experience of people I've spoken with, averagely it's somewhere around 50 years. Mm. So if it is this is a really useful piece of information because if the menopause coincides with the Chiron return, astrologically what we can say is that around that time, because every single Chiron aspect that is experienced from the Chiron return onwards is second time round, So it's the Chiron return of every single aspect to every single thing on your chart, not only the 50-year-old thing. So what's relevant about that is that there is this extraordinary process of recapitulation, of recycling experience with Chiron. By the way, He's not the only planet. He's, he's not a planet, but for brevity, I call him a planet. Sure. He's not the only planet where you will find this if you look deeply enough. Can find it with Saturn to some degree, but it's it's very precise with Chiron. Almost ridiculously so sometimes. And in the first few years after the Chiron return, of course, what's repeating is the period of the precognitive life. So after birth. And before we've learned to speak and 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 walk, so the memories from those times most people don't remember much from that time at all because it's literally like as we begin to speak and move uh, it changes the wiring of our brain um, to the the cognitive stage, and those memories are often present or can be retrieved if necessary or occur in dreams, whatever. But the really, really early stuff, even including prenatal, um, it's like the Chiron process opens the door on that to the extent that that it might be needed in one's process, meaning there might be patterning that originates back there that is still holding you back or that you are still hurting from or you don't understand. So the Chiron process, if you meet it in a very straight-up way with healing practices, meditations, etc., which give you the chance to open your consciousness wide enough to really, really experience what's there, even if you don't understand it, it is amazing, because it's like the veil is pulled back and you get to see and feel and know absolutely what was going on? And by the way, this doesn't stop. Uh, that will go on for the rest of your life. Any of you who on who are on a journey of awakening or healing, um, you you will find that this chiron process I'm talking about is it's a major accompaniment. It's like having our friendly centaur coming along with us in our process. You know. <laughs> And the way that you work with your own process pretty much guaranteed to change around the Chiron return. Because pre-Chiron return, most of us, all we want is just fix it. We want to fix it and be normal, or be whatever it is we think we should be, but just to fix it.
3: Mm.
1: And for many people, it's only once the Chiron return has happened that we really get to understand, wow, this whole journey, is truly about accepting what is. I know that sounds like a cliche, but think, um, think of the of the heart theme, with Chiron. Also, a little mythic detail. There, there was this bird called a griffin, which used to peck out the liver of Prometheus every day, mm-hmm. and then it would grow back again in the night. And so there he was chained as, as if it wasn't enough to be chained on this rock. He had this bird pecking his liver. And, uh, after the changing places, the, the, the griffin is the name of this bird. It was shot through the heart and gotten rid of. So that's even symbolically, it can be like that's a, a nagging, self-critical voice that we, have to work with in some way or another in in our process and it's as if around the Chiron return the whole energy of all that starts to change and it's as if healing begins to occur on whatever level that including making contact with the right the right healer, the right um, of whatever persuasion. Meeting somebody who has a really important clue for you, in the form of a book, or a healing practice, and so forth, and you can feel you're on the stream of healing, and it's a tremendous grace. Yeah, and I think, and you know, it's this shift from, I just have to fix this, to recognizing that in fact, our whole life is a healing journey. And becoming more and more skilled and more and more gracious and empathic about how we meet that. Uh, that's what brings also the gift of healing to other people. So that's how some of the ways I would understand this notion of the wounded healer. That's,
0: that's brilliant, and that makes sense just because it's only after that first 50 years that transiting Chiron has done a complete lap all the way around your chart, and you've experienced all the possible aspects and Permutations yes. of Chiron's aspects, both to its natal position as well as to other planets in your chart, that you can really look back and reflect on that full cycle and, and understand it. Exactly,
1: exactly. Um, so, but oh, that- oh, oh, and a uh, uh, Mister Linky, an important one. Um, if we if we develop the capacity to roll with this sacred healing journey. That we're all on because every single person in some way or another is going to suffer in their lives. And it's not just about fixing it, it's about the compassion to let the energies roll in the way that they need to, if that makes sense. Mm. Now, I've noticed that around the menopause, um, women who do have that kind of a practice, have cultivated that or are starting to, Seem to have less symptoms of, you know, terrible premenstrual tension or mood swings or night sweats or any of these things. And it seems as if people who are really frightened of their own process or haven't yet had the good, for- good fortune to make the right connections to support them in that risk somatizing some of the very powerful physical experiences that will come through to a woman um, at menopause. Because if we take the year of the Chiron return as a kind of a birth, a rebirth, then we can take the year before that kicks in exact as the recap of the prenatal time. And there can be some extremely strange physical sensations that come forth when that's recapitulating and you know in in traditional healing systems they have huge wisdom about the prenatal life and its significance and you know in in western medicine they do have some of that but approach it in a very different way basically seeming to always be looking for what's wrong um not perhaps understanding the spiritual significance of, of what's going on. And the, um, the process of being beset with symptoms can be hugely alleviated for many women if, if they are ready to, to undertake this kind of a healing journey and obviously some people do really have really symptoms that really need attending to so uh, i'm not recommending that you just ignore them but i i know from working with clients that um there's something about connecting in with one's own cosmic rhythms that it does the body good as well we we forget that maybe sometimes
0: right yeah uh, it's hard sometimes when certainly there's um, illnesses that can be psychosomatic in origin, but then other times there's sometimes just physical illnesses and ailments that people have that are independent of that to some extent. Yeah. Um, So I want to back up. One of the things you really focus on in your book and spend a lot of time talking about is just the notion that the house position of Chiron as potentially being an area of life that is initially blocked, wounded, or not functioning in let's say, top capacity to some extent. And that being maybe ground zero or like the starting point for understanding the transiting Chiron cycle and its aspects, Mm -hmm. especially back to itself is understanding. So we talked about and we gave an example of like Chiron in the seventh house and and wounding surrounding relationships. But could we talk about some other house house placements, for example, of Chiron and how that might manifest in an initial Instance of wounding in some some way, or s- just to give some yes. examples. Yes,
1: um, uh, the other thing I'd want to add to that is the the house position of the ruling planet of Chiron's sign.
3: Okay. That
1: really speaks volumes. And you know, it's as if if you understand a bit, or have have got a felt connection with Chiron in terms of some of the themes that it embodies and portrays with a very little bit of astrological of other astrological knowledge i mean house sign aspects dispositor or ruler that kind of thing with with just that you've got enough information to begin to help you to see because the the manifestations of how Chiron shows can vary a lot, and very interesting sometimes it's as if they're not visible to the to the person.
3: Mm.
1: They can have studied Chiron, read all the books, seven classes, and they don't get it. They're not seeing it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: and that's part of a kind of defense, I think. Because it's quite likely that there is perhaps an area of pain that's been covered over there. Um, It doesn't have to be um, a specific actual wound, like, you know, in my case, a broken bone or a trauma, you know, of abuse of various kinds and so forth. But it can be where there is this of existential pain, which fundamentally, spiritually, I feel is like that's where the deepest sense of disconnection from the Great Source will actually register. Now, that can show itself through all kinds of other things, all kinds of other quirks, but at base, it's our felt alienation from our spiritual source. And That's where the healing comes from. And so there's not one way of doing that, or not even one right way. But it's that, you know, where the thing that we struggle with, we gradually peel back the layers and peel back the layers and then realize, wow, you know, this is what's underneath this. And there we have something to work with. Like, for example, um. Oh, I'll, I'll. I'll. This is an example from my own life. So I have Chiron in Sagittarius. I think I mentioned that, mm. and my Jupiter is c- very closely conjunct my IC, which, by the way, I call the "I don't see," because that's often how it is. It's li- lying hidden, you know. Right, and. It was very specific, whole trail in my life for me. So, as I mentioned, I was born in Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe. Um, On one level, witnessing that change from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, it was like an experience of rebirth. There was a newborn country, and everything, everything had changed. And it was as if decades, centuries, of history had just been washed away, absolutely ecstatically wonderful, really, had so many so many interesting experiences, learned so much, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, when things started to go wrong in Zimbabwe, I can't begin to tell you what I went through. It was like I had no. Sense of distance from this, I was profoundly identified, so that ruler of Chiron on the fourth house, you know the home, the country, the family, and all that, and I cried endlessly, I did rituals, I did all kinds of things, and then it was at one Uak I had a conversation with the wonderful astrologer branka stamenkovic you know her mm-hmm. yeah and she said to me um she said one thing i can't do the accent you'll have to imagine it she said one thing you and i share it's homeland pain and she said people who haven't lost their homeland as she had said they can't understand what this is but she said you understand it and i understand it it's called homeland pla- pain i never forgot that and it's as if once i identified that there was a long long period of needing to work inwardly to reclaim the energy of necessity that had been invested in that um and so I tend to get a lot of clients who <laughs> have homeland pain um, or who have worked with very painful issues to do with uh, either they are mixed race or there's an issue there about um, ra- racial origins and how they feel about that and so forth. To- very, very fourth house, all of it. So that's the ruler of Chiron in the fourth.
0: Yeah, I have. It's one of the things, even though I don't work a lot with asteroids, um, it's not that I don't believe in them because I have Chiron conjunct the IC. And while it's not the only thing in my chart that would indicate this, and you can see it traditionally or classically as well, but having Chiron conjunct the IC, uh, losing my father at the age of five to cancer, and that oh. being like an early experience of just like, let's say, you know, loss of a parent as being like an early Chiron type experience of wounding or what have you. I could identify with that. I mean, there's other placements like having the Sun conjunct Saturn or other things like that that are also relevant. But it's interesting how the asteroids can layer on additional nuances of interpretation. On yeah, top in, of in
1: additional detail.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what I've also found about Chiron. It's as if Chiron, and in fact any of the centaurs, they're like portals to the underworld, the realm of death. So at one or other point in our lives, all of us become aware of death and physical mortality. Mm-hmm. And with Chiron there in the in the fourth, I would imagine that it was that very young experience of loss just may have opened the doors to that uh, whether or not the rest of your family spoke about it in those terms you know right yeah um, so the,
0: i mean those, so those are really concrete examples of like in your case like your you know place of origin and and um living situation in homeland and also ideas of um ancestry and things like that as other fourth house topics or for me exactly. concrete things of like parents. Um, if we we're talking about other houses, uh, the first house seems a little obvious that it could be more bodily issues or struggling with um, yes. he- health or illness issues perhaps.
1: Indeed, indeed. It's often with Chiron in the first mm-hmm. house, um, that the person is o- often engaging with their own sense of woundedness. Whether it's obvious, Or not. I mean, some people even might have a physical deformity that they even might successfully hide, but which limits their life. And things like that is often very specific there. Mm. And then if it's Chiron in the seventh house, that can be a theme where the person is always looking after other people. They might have even made a profession out of it. Mm. If not, it's something to be curious about. Because there is, you know, the um there's a kind of triad around Chiron's energy in terms of how it might express. There's the healer, and there's the the one who is afflicted, and then there's also the one who does the afflicting. Mm. So like that I forget the name of the guy who did this this, this is back from the 1970s now remember um, vi- victim and persecutor and healer do you remember that mm. or was it healer victim and persecutor or anyway, this it's now called the something or other triangle you do see that around Chiron i was horrified to when i was you know researching in a bit more um uh, in a, in a bit more detached way, not, not just with my own process and my clients and so forth. I was pretty shocked to find a number of famous serial killers who all had extremely strong chirons, but they did it by doing the wounding. And it was really then that I really began to understand how, in the main, people who wound Do so on the back of their own wounding. Hmm. So when there's pain there that just isn't processed, there's a kind of knee-jerk reaction to put it out there to make somebody feel how you feel. Okay, and that can all be totally unconscious. And that is the most dangerous thing about unprocessed suffering: is it will go and do it to somebody else. That's really interesting. If the, if the pressure ratchets up, and of course, that's what history's made of. You know wars come, and people are pumped up as heroes, and they're paid by people who just you know want to take over from uh, from a motivation of greed, greed and money and exploitation and you know territory and all that kind of thing, or internecine struggles of one kind or another. And that it's a whole kind of bloodletting thing which brings the opportunity for people to just act out the unresolved pain that they feel inside themselves by inflicting it on somebody else
0: That's a really interesting point so it means uh, in terms of Chironic wounding not everybody's going to like grow up and you know take that that wound and then like become a shaman and start helping other people some people are just going to um, become the one who does that to other people yeah. in a negative sense. I looked up the triangle, and it looks like it's called the CarpeMan drama triangle, and the th- the three pieces are like the victim, the rescuer, or the that's
1: persecutor. It res- yeah, yeah, that's yes, that's exactly it. Okay, yeah. So there's a similar one with Chiron, and so you know, from one point of view, uh, e- even if. It was possible to, like, switch, switch off the world and all its wars, and everything going on, to just switch it off. It would probably take hundreds of years to process all of the suffering that's already been generated, and in that sense, um, finding the way to process one's own suffering, and perhaps even a bit wider than that, meaning to take on even more than just your own little share, mm-hmm. perhaps through through prayer, through ritual, through whatever means makes sense. Uh, it makes a difference to the whole field in which we live. Um, that's that's not just a belief. I've seen that kind of stuff in action. I'm sure a lot of a lot of you listening have, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that we could call them the, the chironic mysteries are really all to do with the experience of pain and suffering and the healing thereof in such a way that there's an opening of consciousness. it's It's not just about, you know fixing a bro- broken arm. If that makes sense to you,
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, the last angle we haven't talked about that is a little bit more mysterious for me would be the 10th house in terms of what would the wound potentially be with somebody ah, with Chiron yes. conjunct the midheaven or in the 10th yes, house. Yes,
1: okay. It could be a, a chronic sense of not feeling recognized. Mm. And, you know, often with our sufferings, things are not as they seem. We think, That we're hurting because of X, Y, and Z. And then the more we inquire and work with it, oh, no, it's not that. Mm -hmm. It's something else. And so, needing the approval of the world is that's a a 10th house theme, potential 10th house theme in one way or another. And when Chiron is up there, uh, well, many different expressions can happen, but there can be an incredible feeling of pain. If one doesn't feel recognized enough, there's a twist on that one too. It can sometimes be that the person can't handle recognition and being applauded and celebrated and so forth, because that may be coming from such a lack of that that it threatens to <laughs> overturn all the known and familiar structures. And so they freeze. Or turn their back on it, etc., because so much pain comes up. Mm. Um, that's a really interesting one. And then, of course, Chiron in the tenth, usually professionally involved in the field of healing in some way. And I remember a lovely example of this. This was a woman who actually ran the admin desk in a hospital. And I, you know, I was very curious about the Chiron, and then you know eventually it came up about what she was doing and so forth. And in the conversation, it came out that she had she had wanted to be um, a doctor, but she didn't really have the intellect to get through the exams. and then she wanted to be a nurse as a kind of second best. and then she became ill and didn't get through the physical I- exam to, be, to enroll but she wanted to work somewhere in the field of healing and so she trained in management and all that and did all this admin but i could feel this woman's vibe i could feel the healer in the room and i said i said to her well have you ever trained in any, any other kind of healing cuz i could feel it and she looked a bit kind of you know, like the rabbit in the headlights, I I kind of caught her out of something. So I didn't say anything more. And then she said, "Well, you know, I don't usually talk about this, but I did train as a spiritual healer, mm. and I feel it's my job to look after all the people who do the frontline nursing and doctoring and sur- you know surgeons and all the rest of it." She said, "I just sit at my typewriter and I answer the phone and I do all these things, but I'm actually giving them healing." Wow. That was that was a very memorable one. And then of course being the tenth house, it can be where there there's a, a um a healer who who gets quite a bit of profile, you know, mm. who either himself embodies the archetype of the wounded healer, or who kind of takes on the establishment over some particular aspect of, you know, medical law or you know, commercial exploitation of medical profession—all of these things. By the way, with all of the above, um, when I did the revision of the Chiron book, and we were talking a little about this before we um, switched on the recording.
0: Right. I was curious what. Because the book's gone through, it's up to its fourth edition, and you've done substantial revisions. So I was curious what is new in the latest editions that you changed over the 20 years since you published it first?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, first published in 1989. There were two editions when it was still with Penguin, and there was just minor corrections and a new cover. The text didn't change at all. Okay. But the 2010 edition, which I published myself at Starwalker Press, I, I pretty much rewrote the book. Okay. Now, the reason I felt it was necessary to do that was firstly, um, the first edition goes, it predates the discovery of the Kuiper Belt with all of this wonderful astronomy, which just is poetry in the sky in terms of what Chiron and the centaurs mean. I just thought, I can't possibly. You know, bring out the same old text without including all this marvelous new astronomy. So I just thought, well, I'll just put in a whole new section relating to that. Then I started just doing a kind of proofread thing, because as you, as I'm sure you know, you can never proofread a book enough. Right. Doesn't matter how much you do, you always find mistakes. Okay. Yeah. So in section four, which was called is called Spirit of the Age, I realized. Two things. One, that just simply on a practical level, a lot of the people who I wrote about had died or more development on their stories and so forth. And I just thought, no, nah, this needs to be updated. You know, it really does. Right. But then the big thing, and this was the actual motivation. Uh, my hope, vision, feeling when I was writing it the first time, so now we're going back to the 1980s. Was given what Chiron represented in the field of healing. And it had like emerged now with, with the name of the wounded healer being tagged onto a celestial body.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I thought, surely now this must represent the flowering, the, the rise and the flowering of so called alternative medicine, mm-hmm. because it was really burgeoning during those times. So many people being trained in so many interesting indigenous techniques, whole schools of things like osteopathy, um, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, just a whole range of wonderful different things to do with health. So I thought, you know, this is where we're heading. Mm. Uh, no, that was totally wrong. Yeah, what's happened is the big foot of commercialization. Big money, big pharma, big medicine, all of that has just come down with a crash Mm. on top of it to the extent that there is exclusion to the level of persecution. There are even known excellent wounded healer types who've been killed subtly, you know, they have. And it's an absolute minefield with a lot of very, very upsetting stuff going on as we speak. Um, you know the the Royal Homoeopathic Hospital, right? You know the uh, whatever you think of them, the royal family use homeopathy, and that's probably right. the only reason it survived here.
0: Charles is like really into it.
1: Oh, totally, totally, um, and the Queen. Okay. And. They don't really say much about this because everybody tries to make out that it's all stupid and worthless and so forth. But there was a, a, fully, a full homeopathic hospital in central London, and it almost closed, and it's now, it's been reduced to a shadow of what it was. There was a major cancer clinic, using alternatives of, vari- of various kinds, had a fabulous reputation. A lot of fabulous people worked there. Lot of healing going on and so forth, and it was closed down by the powers that be.
0: Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of pushback, but even in defense of like 1980s era, you like the there's been some forms of alternative medicine, like um, acupuncture, for example, that has become a bit more mainstream and more accepted in some even scientific circles. It seems like,
1: yeah, it's true, it's true. Um, but there was a lot of very ugly stuff on the ground. I mean, I know a lot of people who work in those kind of fields. So I've heard many, many stories
3: mm-hmm.
1: and even done some pretty vociferous campaigning myself and so forth. But that that's another story. Sure. And I just kept having this sense that in the times that we were in—this is 2010—it uh, came out in 2010. So I was writing it during the so-called SARS epidemic that's a whole other thing
3: mm-hmm. but
1: i just had this almost like a phrase in my head and that, that phrase is somewhere in the book that to remain healthy in the times we are living in is an act of true revolution and i mean that
3: mm.
1: because to stay healthy mostly you you really do have to change your mental uh, your mental Cosmology and structure of understanding, um, because so much of the you know the common medicine that is uh, that that we meet today, it has either already sold out to commerce a long time ago, um, or it's on the way there, and there's a lot of absolutely disgraceful things that have happened. In the name of healing and medicine, and so to to return to the true basis of health, which has to have a spiritual connection, you know, um, is part of what I would think of as a healing journey. Um, And this is this is connected, I think, to the whole momentum of. Of Chiron, that 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 kind of started in the 1980s. Well, it was discovered in 1977, and then worked worked on by various people, including me. And now I think it's almost like the ultimatum is getting even more clear that it is an act of revolution to 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 manage to or intend to stay healthy in these times, especially now that we're in a pandemic.
0: Right. Well, it'll be interesting in the next decade. Um, it was discovered in 1977, so we're coming up pretty soon on on Chiron yes. doing one full orbital cycle since its I discovery. I know the
1: Chiron return. I I hope I'm still alive. Wow.
0: Yeah, it's just it, I, I really do. It looks like it's uh, so. It was discovered at three degrees of Taurus, and Chiron yeah. is currently at about seven degrees of Aries. So I think I was looking; it was around like 2027 or something. It'll get into early Taurus or so.
1: Yes, it's there. Will actually be three direct hits of of the return. Okay. I don't ha- I don't have the dates with me, but it goes way into um, 2008 as well. Into 2028.
0: Yeah. Okay. Here it is. It looks like it's already into Taurus by 2026, and then.
1: Oh, oh yes, but I'm just thinking of the exact exact. You know. Right. It's twenty 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 seven and twenty eight.
0: Got it. Okay. So here's the first exact hit. It looks like in June, may or june twenty twenty seven give or take.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: um, yeah. So that was actually one of the questions, though, and maybe that's relevant from a listener in terms of, you know, a lot of the books on Chiron came out within the first decade of the release. And I know at least there were two questions that were similar like that. And I was curious what your reflections are now several oh, decades is. later. One of them was, Yes, from yes. a listener named Diana Schapp who said, "Chiron is so new. Is it fair to say that we may not still, we may not understand it? How many years does it take to see correlations between planets and earthly events?" And another person, Claire Moon, similarly you're, you're, said,
1: "You all, all really great questions." Uh, they said, um, "I don't think that one can arbitrarily designate how long it takes to understand something because sure. I think it's a process." Mm-hmm. Um. And the more we stay with something, both individually and of course collectively, the deeper that knowledge goes.
0: Do you feel like you've had any, some evolution of your views of Chiron since you wrote, wrote the book in 1989? Or yes, if, are yes. there any uh, specific things besides some of your frustrations with um, alternative medicine not going as mainstream? Yeah, are yeah. there specific technical interpretive things that you've developed more over the past 30 uh, years?
1: Yes. Yes and um the main thing is the importance of the ancestral realm and the way this, the centaurs including Chiron kind of open that up now that was mentioned in the in the first edition but it seemed like that was what was continually presenting with clients that i would see and of course in my own process and this really makes sense to me um partly based on Well, the small knowledge that I have, at least of some of the African tribal cultures around where I come from. So the ancestors are extremely important in that culture. So an anthropologist might call them ancestor worshippers, but that is so not what's going on. What's going on there is that the ancestors are seen like a membrane that protects the living, Oh, a membrane in the spiritual world that protects the living from negative influences in the astral. That's just my my way of describing it. But they talk about you know the, the individual person needing safety and protection in the spiritual world in the same way as you have a physical house that protects you from the elements or from people who might come to want to rob you or whatever. And ideally, you know, a family and the and the the neighbourhood in the village they are part of that safety system, and thus it is with the ancestors in the spiritual world. So the ancestors occupy the same realm as the centaurs because they're in between the visible and the invisible. I've also had um, the great good fortune to be able to do quite a lot of ancestral work in one way or another and spoken to numerous people who likewise have done that and the way that this the way that the process is signified with such precision by the centaurs is just totally incredible i mean really it really is you couldn't make it up
0: so part and of your your process after publishing the book on Chiron in 1989 was expanding it to focus on the other centaurs and what are the yes. what are the other ones that you incorporate specifically
1: Right. So I use three more um, in In order of their discovery: uh, Pholus, and Nessus, and Chariclo, who's the wife of Chiron. Very interesting. I, 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 a few years ago, I had occasion to do quite a lot of work on her because I kept getting people <laughs> with a very prominent Chariclo. Mm. Now, there are more centaurs, and I don't. It's as if the the other ones don't really have a fully fleshed out characterology in the mythology or much of a storyline really. They may be mainly associated with one anecdote, perhaps connected with another centaur or a god or goddess or demigod or something, but they don't feel like really rounded out characters to me, maybe because they just haven't spoken to me. But these four absolutely do, and there's also the mythology, especially with Pholus and Nessus, is really, really rich. There's a lot to go from. And um, you know, after by 1989, I mean, I was censured out. I can tell you. I, I mean, when I was actually writing to contract, that I mean, I'd spent almost a decade collecting material, and I had like boxes of notes and stuff and so on. This was Mm. before computers. And when Chiron was finally published, I thought, okay, that's it. You know, enough centaurs, enough of that, et cetera, et cetera. And um, my centaur buddy, Brian Clark from from Australia, I vividly remember he would send me these faxes from New Scientist Magazine or other things. It's like new centaurs being discovered. I thought, oh no. No, I'm not going to work with them. Enough already. This was too much. So I delib- and and you know, I, I would write him back or fax him back and say, "Thanks, Brian. That's great." And I actually wasn't even looking at them. <laughs> they would come through by fax in those days. I was okay. like screw- screwing it up and putting it in the bin because I, I I refuse. I'm not doing this. And I did that for a few years, and then there was a string of synchronicities that. I absolutely could not ignore. And I basically said, okay, I agree. I'll do some more work, kind of thing. It was like that. You know, it was extraordinary.
0: Yeah. So you felt like this was your work and you were called to do it at different points, uh, even sometimes despite your resistance.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And of course, once I was into it, it was just very joyful. A lot of hard work, but very joyful.
0: Do you have any advice? One of the things that's happening now is we're having the discovery of new, really large um, minor planets in the outer re- yes. ring of the solar system, and astrologers yes. are starting to think about like how to incorporate those or how to study yes. those, like especially bodies like Eris. Do you have any advice yep. um, that you learned from being an early pioneer in studying Chiron that if you could go back and do it all over again that you would have applied if you were trying to study some of these new newly discovered planetary bodies?:
1: Yes, but first, I, I'm, I would like to respond to that great question with a quote from Richard Tarnas. Now, he doesn't remember saying this, but I know that this, what I'm going to say, was captured on a recording um, at the Astrological Association conference in Canterbury in 1994 was a panel discussion and somebody who was in fact a new astrology student asked in general to 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 the, to the panel precisely that question in in the sense of well oh and this was long before the discovery of the centaurs and you know the tnos and all that she was actually just referring i think she might have been referring to like the asteroids but just different techniques that you could apply to the horoscope like harmonics and midpoints and what about draconic astrology and all these things. So her question was, how do I know what to use? And this is what Richard Tarnas said. This is verbatim. I never forgot it. He said, in astrology, you can only work with what is burnished into your soul. End of. In other words, like I was kind of saying earlier, I'm not, I'm not really a researcher. Mm.
3: Uh,
1: I don't really have a researcher's mind, but I, I know how to keep going on a trail once I really feel called. That's a different kind of experience than just being wildly curious or wanting to know about something. It's like your entire energy body is involved, your body, your feelings, your mind, your imaginations, boom, now I only work with that otherwise I think I'd go mad you know I've probably got too much air in my horoscope to be a researcher because I would I would be crazy so the advice yes um I I would say unless you've got a really good grounded kind of mind you know something really helpful like maybe a lot of virgo or maybe a good um saturn mercury aspect or a a third house, which has got some good, good, something earth planets in there and so forth. Take care that you don't scramble yourself with that and find maybe your own way to have that not happen because it will spoil it for you. So, my way, as I described, is I, I can only work with what I feel is burnished into my soul truly. And that narrows the field rather well. It also makes it a wonderfully surprising thing. Like when I began to work with Chariclo, it was quite a few years since I'd had any major centaur downloads. But this happened out the blue in the middle of a session with a client. So, wow, you know. Um, So, I would say, you know, if you've got the kind of mind that can stay grounded and stay organized, open up a file with different sections. Well, you'd probably today you'd probably do that in a computer, but most of most of my Chiron notes they were in an old-fashioned ring binder file, with divisions first house, second house, and so on and so forth, and that was how the material grew. I just endlessly, endlessly made notes, Mm. Um, and that really worked for me. And I I think in general that's quite a good approach: is to to be structured with it, and also be clear about why you're doing that. Uh, I know for me, it was very clear that I, because these were all happening in my life with my transits, I absolutely felt I needed to understand this process a bit because it was actually happening to me or in my life. Uh, now with, with the extra Plutonians, um, so, you know, the, 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 the TNOs and the SDOs and all of these weird things, some of which are wonderful, marvelous. I did go through a phase where I deliberately decided to try to learn about them and I, I made some headway and it was very interesting. I even did a a workshop together with Stephen Forrest on this, because he was doing the same thing. That was huge fun. It was wonderful. But you know, after I'd done all that work, it didn't really stick. Because mm. they were not burnished into my soul. Fair enough. So, be systematic, be organised, and ask yourself why am I doing this? Because, you know, in in the wisdom tradition, which is astrology, I think it's really the same as as many of the other wisdom traditions. There's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom, and so. Wisdom is really only given on a need-to-know business. And so to ask yourself why you might be doing something in astrology, it's always an interesting inquiry, because there is a part of us that has to know things, needs to know things, wants to figure it all out. And in part, that's a great motivation to be learning astrology, because actually the end the learning is absolutely endless. But at the same time there can be a very unhelpful, ego driven aspect of that, which isn't like wrong, but it's good to be aware of that so that it doesn't pull you all over. So therefore, take charge of that wish. Be structured, pace it, and and uh, let let the journey unfold as it will. That's what I would say. I hope that's helpful.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. Um I was just in preparation for this episode. One of the things that I was doing is um, just using Solar Fire and searching for like everybody in my files that has Chiron conjunct the descendant within, exactly. let's say, like, like a three degree orb or something like that. What do you think? Is that too tight or what kind of orbs do you use for?
1: Well, that's a, another good question. Now, um, in a general way, I would start. Uh, with the same use the same orbs that you're comfortable with uh, as you would use for saturn okay but now i'm i'm one of these people well depending on what i'm trying to do in a given astrology project um i do sometimes play fast and loose with the whole question of orbs because what makes more sense to me is to really listen to the person, and you know, when I say listen, I don't only, only mean the words that they're saying, because some some clients hardly speak. Mm-hmm. But you need to learn to listen to their energies, to intuit, to feel the reality of this person whose horoscope you're reading. You see, and um, in that case, they might be saying things. That if your idea about the right orb is too narrow, you're going to miss it. You're right. going to miss the planetary magic that they're telling you about.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I remember when, I, when that really came home to me, when I, um, this is quite a while back now, I had a client who I really, really liked so much, and she had been through hell and high water in her life with illness. And the result for her was she was left very, very sensitized, which was sometimes difficult for her, but mostly very um, enriching. And she came and started talking about what was happening in her Pluto transit. And I remember sitting there and thinking, wait a minute, Pluto is. Applying by 12 degrees to this woman's sun. And she doesn't really understand anything about astrology. So, what's going on? And I just, you know, dropped all that and just listened. And what was absolutely clear was the woman was, she was picking up the resonance already. And it was 12 degrees applying, which is really a lot, Mm -hmm. you know. So, after that, I became maybe a little less fixed in my mind, and decided to just try to listen out to the words, the vibes, whatever the person would say. And if they are speaking the astrological symbolism, well then those planets are in orb. (laughs) So that's my basic policy. I also understand, and Chris, you would you would know about this, I'm I'm sure. Is it true that that way Way back in the day, in some of the old traditions, they would refer to planets being conjunct if they were in the same sign and house. Is uh, yeah, that true? If,
0: if they were anywhere in the same sign, they would consider sign. them to be in a conjunction and interpret it that way. And they would just treat it as becoming more intense the closer they'd get by degree.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. That so, so, of...
1: so, yeah. So, that, that, that's an example, but that, that's a great question.
0: So, um, I know we need to wrap up soon, but I just wanted to mention there's a few other keywords that I don't know if we mentioned. I just wanted to run them by you really quickly. One of them was doing for others what we cannot do for ourselves. Yes. Also, uh, another theme of sacrifice and being separated from something that we feel we can't live without. And yeah. finally, another area that you talk about in the book was a feeling of exile.
1: Oh yes, yes, that's that's quite a big one, because the centaurs in the mythology, they never inhabited the cities. Mm. They they lived in the caves that surround uh, the villages and the cities and so forth, out in the wilds. Mm. And you know, if you go now today, I I don't know about precisely today. It's maybe fifteen years since I was last there. But if you go to Mount Pelion, which is the archetypal mythological home. Mm. Of the centaurs, but it is a real place and a real mountain. If, if you go there, every second, cafe, store, little hotel, anything, they all have little boards with something to do with Kentavros, that's the centaur, and loads of people who want to take you to Chiron's cave mm. and then Lots and lots and lots of Chiron's caves, you see, <laughs> and they, and everybody says, "No, no, this is a real one." Uh, so that's very amazing. Uh, but w- w- what I, I went off, I went uh, just, off the rails uh, there with your question.
0: Whether those are other core themes that I think we oh, yes. we touched upon them briefly, but just ideas of sacrifice being separated from yes, something.
1: That was the notion of the exile. So, mm. th- so the centaurs. Uh, they lived outside the city but at least the main the main ones the ones that are named often had a, a shamanic kind of a role vis-a-vis the humans so they were the healers the diviners that kind of thing and they inhabited this in-between realm again it's between the city and the country mm-hmm. So they're not in the country and totally disconnected from anything to do with human society, but they certainly aren't city dwellers either, you know
0: right. So they're because they're half animal, they're sort of cast out of society of human society, but still interact with it in different ways.
1: Yes, and of course have a very special relationship with the energies of nature mm. and and the earth
0: okay. Um, and then finally, just that idea of being separated from something that we feel as if we can't live without seems to be a major recurring theme that we touched upon a few times when we were going through some of the houses, but that seems like a good underlying theme, theme to keep in mind.
1: Yes, because because of the extraordinary connection between the centaurs and Pluto, who is the lord of the underworld and therefore presides over the experience of loss. There's a very strong resonance with Chiron there. I mean, the, the the astronomical similarities are incredible. So all the Centaurs and Pluto, as I think I mentioned, but just to repeat, they they all have um, elliptical orbits that are steeply inclined to the ecliptic, mm-hmm. and they all cross over at least one of the, the the orbits of the classical planets, and so it's as if you know Pluto, Lord of the Underworld, is also like the King of the Kuiper belt, and the Centaurs are like the agents or emissaries or even the escapees from the underworld. And it's like they are like our guides in very underworldy kind of experiences where there might be immense suffering because we're ill or bereaved um or because of painful things happening to those we're really close to. What whatever it is, um, and so it seems to me that the, the centaurs are our our little guides in those underworldy regions. Because normally, you know, we just think of you know Pluto, Lord of the Underworld, you know, dark, black, heavy, contracted kind of stuff. But in 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 pretty much all cultures who've got any connection still with the the energies of the earth. The underworld is thought to be under the earth, and it is uh, the, both the realm of the dead, but the, it's not like, oh, it's the realm of the dead, that's it. It's full of different zones, like the Greek underworld has many, many different zones in it. Mm. You know, Tartarus and the Elysian fields, and um, the place called Aornos, and all different things happen in these zones. It's not just one uniform horror, you know. And it is also very much the realm that opens up if we, for example, go into a Jungian analysis or work deeply with our dreams and so forth. And it's as if these little critters represent this energy of being able to handle paradox, being able to handle dilemma, uh, in order that something deeper than the duality can come through. I think that's really what they're about.
0: Okay. Brilliant. Um are there any other final things we should mention about Chiron before we wrap up that I completely spaced out or forgot to mention?
1: Oh, well there's a listener question here from 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 Claire Moon. Okay. I think the we, question is Did 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 we mention that?
0: Yeah, I think we got that one. It was just tied in with the idea of how long it's been around. Um one of the ah, other the okay. two other ones we haven't oh, touched on a- was
1: Di- that that was that was with that was with Diana right but uh, um the next question i don't think we did with the clear moon
0: so
2: with
1: with with that review that i told you about did we talk about that
0: um what part oh right um yeah that was a, a funny so one of your early reviews of the book when it for not long after it first came out was kind of funny correct yeah um because there was i mean i'm sure Even though in retrospect, it seems like there was this wave of astrologers getting into the asteroids and writing books about them. Occasionally, I'm sure you got pushback as well, right? Or skepticism, or.
1: You know, I didn't really.
0: No, not so much. Okay.
3: Um... I
1: really, really didn't. And I don't really know why.
3: Mm.
1: I think at least. So this was pre internet days. It came out before the internet, you know? Mm -hmm. And. There is really a true there. I mean, as long as I've lived in England, I, I've there is an amazing astrological community here mm. that pretty much covers all bases in terms of all different approaches psychological, traditional, academic, horary, I mean, you name it, it's all here. And this is a very small island. And it's as if because we we know the people. Um there's an amazing amount of really positive exchange. Now, d- don't get me wrong, it's not without its kind of tribal horrors. There's no group that can get away from that. But I guess, overall, the, because there's so many different approaches and so many different kind of astrologers all doing wonderful astrology things in a relatively small area, um, I didn't really get any negative pushback. Okay. Um which well, I have wh- to say I was hugely grateful for it would have been horrible.
0: Sure. What <laughs> what what was the book review that you did? Oh, get at this one point? review
1: I love this. So I it, it was a, a reviewer who said a, said a lot of kind of somewhat grudging positive things about the book and then said something like, well, um, if you're somebody who believes that a, f- a fully fleshed out you know description of of this Chiron is possible in such a short amount of time since it was discovered, I mean, well then maybe this book is for you, i e, it's not for me, the reviewer. And then the final sentence, this is this is verbatim. I never forgot it. I dined out on this and I wanted it on my epitaph. Uh, however, if Reinhardt is massively disconnected from reality, at least she has done it in style. I roared with <laughs> laughter, found uh, up my friend, I said, Hey, listen to this, listen to this. I want it on my epitaph.
0: Yeah, that was very eloquent, um somewhat praise in terms of yeah, as a as a review, that's pretty good. That, you should put that on one of the future editions of the book on the back cover.
1: I didn't even think of that.
0: Might be, wow. it might, might be, might be <laughs> fun. Um. All right. Thank you. I know we're. I don't want to take up more of your time. I could. I know we could keep talking all day, but it's been two hours. Um.
1: R- really? Yeah. I didn't I, mean, even, I didn't even look at the clock. I've really enjoyed having a conversation with you. It's been great.
0: Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for doing this. We've been in the process of setting this up for a few months now, and I'm really glad that it finally came together. Um. Yes. I did want to. Give a shout out and a thanks to my partner Lisa Scheim for her help researching this episode because she's a big fan of Chiron and
1: oh, wonderful! um, Helped me through it. Big, big thanks to Lisa,
0: yes, definitely. And what do you have coming up, or do you have any classes, or events, or projects that you're working on right now for the future?
1: Yes, um, a weekend after next, there's a weekend conference um, hosted by the um. The London School of Astrology and the Mayo School—they're both here in England—and mm. there, there are some. It's an amazing lineup, really. And I'll be doing a kind of workshopy thing, so that—that that means a long session, three hours, obviously with a gap. And um, I'm also doing something for Astrology University. It's not—it's not yet up and advertised yet, but it'll be on the nineteenth of December. In between a couple of things, local. Where I'm, I'm hoping they're going to be live, but actually I don't think they are going to be. Um, And I'm also, uh, I'm also considering starting a small group, which would be like a weekly, two two weekly, monthly kind of thing. I probably wouldn't do that until beginning of next year, but if I do, if I do start that. It would be on on the events page of my website, or also I would I would mention it uh, in my one of my occasional newsletters. So okay. that's that's for subscribers, and I do have a there's a si- sign up thing on the homepage of my website if you if you want to get that get that news.
0: And your website is MelanieReinhardt.com. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Great. Um, so people can find out information about those events. They can sign up for your newsletter there. And I'll put a link to that in the description either below this video on YouTube or on the description page on the astrologypodcast.com website.
1: Oh, That's um, great. So my website really is like an unruly jungle, in that sense, a bit centauric. Sure. I mean, it, it really needs a good prune and a good redo, which I will get to at some point. But in other words, there's a lot of digging that you can do. There's a lot of content on it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been really helpful as I was getting ready for this episode. So people should definitely check it out, and they should also get the fourth edition of your book. Which when was the latest edition put out? Was it 2010 or more recent than that? It,
1: it was. It was 2010. Okay. And in in fact, if any of you listening are Dutch speakers, now there is a new edition of the Dutch language translation in preparation as we speak, and. When I was working with the translator, she picked up a few things, mostly in section four, which, you know, like I said, because um, like the people had died or the situation had changed and so on and so forth. And she said, Well, do you, do you want to kind of update this or write a little extra piece? So I said, Yeah, great, you know. So by the end of the year, it will be that the Dutch language translation will be, <laughs> that'll be the most recent edition. But at some point, I guess I'll have to do another small revision of Chiron. But the, uh, the 2010 one still stands, you know?
0: Okay, uh, great. And um, yeah, people can find that on your website or they can find links to that on Amazon. There's like a Kindle version as well.
1: Exactly. And there is a page on my website where you can buy my titles if you want. And they're all available on Amazon and and also other. Various book retailers, you know, like Gardner's and Kobo and all, all these things. They try to make them as available as possible.
0: Excellent. Um, great. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, likewise, it's been great. I could talk for another few hours with you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to do this again sometime to talk about some of the other centaurs and some of your, your other work with those. Fine. Brilliant. Alright, well thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Uh, thanks to all the patrons and supporters, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to the patrons who support the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons that are on our producers tier, such as Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Thomas Miller, Bear River, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, and Sumo Kopic. Find out more about how to become a patron at patreon.com/slash astrologypodcast. Also, thanks to our sponsors this month, which include the AstroGold Astrology app, available at AstroGold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co. And also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting an online conference September 12th through the 13th, 2020. Find out more information at esar2020.org, as well as the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening May 27th through the 31st, 2021, and you can find out more information about that at norwac.net. Finally, the software we use here on the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, and it's available through alabe.com And you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.